So welcome to the fourth episode of Quarantine Market Podcast, where some academics come together to talk about our historical moment in the self-isolating comfort of our pajamas. Today, we have Nora Campbell as our third guest now. So, Alan, I know you're itching to introduce Nora. Yes, it's my great pleasure to introduce Nora Campbell, who works at Trinity College at the University of Dublin. Um, she has for years been working on areas around biology, uh, concepts like the post-human, nanotechnology, and uh, what we're going to be talking about with her today, uh, bacteria, and how we might understand it vis-a-vis the market. So, hello, Nora. Hello, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. So, we might as well get straight into it. Uh, to begin with, Nora, could you tell us a very basic question, which is, what is the difference between bacteria and virus? Well, I guess on a purely physical level, a, a bacteria is a much more complex entity. So, it, it has a cell wall and it has a nucleus and a membrane and it's very ancient. Well, I suppose viruses are ancient too. Um, bacteria are about maybe four billion years old, so one of the earliest life forms, if not the the earliest life form. Bacteria, importantly, I guess, can uh, reproduce on their own and they don't need a host to survive. So they can survive for very long periods of time outside of a kind of host environment, Uh, whereas a virus uh, can't survive without a host for any length of time. So you probably see on websites and stuff on kind of, you know, how long can... Uh, COVID-19 or the coronavirus survive on cardboard, etc. Not very long. It's really basic uh, as an entity. So when it attaches on to the cell wall of wherever it's going to attack in the host, um, so the respiratory system, etc. Most viruses cause disease, whereas uh, bacteria, most bacteria don't cause disease, but I don't know, less than 1% of bacteria strains will cause disease. Um, but what a, a virus does is it uh, gets into the host and gets into the cells of whatever system it's going to attack. And then it'll, it, it reprograms the cells. So actually, viruses are often talked about in sociological discourse, anthropological discourse, and medical discourse in a computer terminology, whereas in, in the case of uh, bacteria and um, bacteriological language, um, isn't really computer-led. It's not about programming. It's much more communal and communitary and talked about uh, much more anthropologically, I guess. Why do you think that should be? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Probably because of the very, very basic nature of, of a virus in comparison to a bacterium. Like a bacterium, it's a type of life the same way as all animals and all mammals and all uh, arachnids are another type of life. And then all sponges are another type of life. But so bacteria are kind of definitely different from our type of life. But uh, viruses are kind of different again in that they uh, have less agency and are very much working uh, at very, very small levels of information processing. So they, they barely have a DNA structure. They have a, a little ball of genetic material, but it's mostly kind of a, a much more informational uh, program that it reproduces. Whereas a bacterium, uh, bacteria do things uh, communally 
um, together that are kind of very mind-bending for bacteriological research. So like bacteria, when they, they get into the body, they, they perform this thing called quorum sensing. So basically they get in and uh, they take up uh, residence in a body and they reproduce and reproduce, but uh, they're benign. And then all of a sudden they will switch on. Uh, so, you know, millions, uh, billions of bacterial cells can switch on altogether really suddenly. And that's called quorum sensing. When you have that happening at the level of trillions of bacteria, when you have really bad bacterial infection and it just suddenly starts, it's because it's already taken up such a stronghold in the body and then goes, right, guys, come on. Or bacteria can, if they're uh, reproducing and, and doing work within the body, they have idiolects uh, that they can speak to in single little groups. Um, and so uh, if one bacterium is being lazy, and that is the terminology that's used in bacteriological research, but if one bacterium isn't pulling its weight, um, it will be uh, ignored by the bacterial cells around it such that they will start to uh, talk to each other in a slightly different uh, dialect thus killing the kind of lazy bacterial cell. So bacteriological research is, is kind of really interesting because it always shows us that th these performances of things that are much older than us and forming at the levels of trillions of agents in operation show kind of, it, it, it always upsets that kind of thing of kind of, oh, we're at the pinnacle of communicational uh, thought when we, you know, when we have social media or something, which is, you know, a couple of billion people talking. And th that level of talk is very uh, unsophisticated in comparison. So, but, but, but to go back to the, the virus, the virus is an executor. It kind of mindlessly executes uh, a program, whereas a bacterium is constantly much more communicational changing uh, its conversation as it evolves. Can you tell us about this field of bacteriology? What, what is its history, for example? Yeah, um, bacteriological research, that kind of bacteriological moment, I guess, is, is not that old. Uh, and I guess the famous way to say it, or to describe it is the famous anthropologist Mary Douglas, whose 1960, early 1960s book on um, pathogenicity uh, was called Purity and Danger. And her basic argument in Purity and Danger, it's an anthropological book, so it's trying to explain the meaning of dirt and where dirt and grime and gloaming kind of comes from. And she traces this kind of moment when uh, a kind of conception of dirt and where dirt comes from, what dirt does, changes from a kind of miasmic moment. So that Victorian era that uh, a dirt was a vapor, um, a kind of shadowy figure that would uh, that had an evil uh, intent. Uh, so things like mists and fogs and kind of uh, vapours uh, that are often described in Victorian novels, etc., as being kind of the advent of uh, the miasma change to a, a medicalised understanding of dirt as bacteriological. 
So I guess the with the that kind of era the, in a Victorian era, you start to see that movement towards a bacteria in a, a medicalized sense or a kind of formalized scientific sense, rather than uh, an imaginary of it as 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 having an evil agency and in a kind of uh, mist or a vapor. I think also, like from a more cultural standpoint, this kind of same logic applies to viruses as well. When I think about it, viruses, at least for me, are associated more with the with the alien threat. It's a more of an alien intrusion of automatized beings rather than a bacteria. Again, culturally, is something that you would rather associate to have a community, have their form of life, they're an entity, even mm -hmm. if they're rather simplistic and manifest in the million. That logic of a kind of computational sociality um, of the virus, that kind of way of writing or way of seeing the virus and, and translating it into cultural studies, sociology, social critique was very big in the 1980s. Um, and you get works like um, a lot of people like Leo Bersani that talk about the AIDS virus culturally or sociologically as a way of understanding society. Also as a really quick minor note, I had mm. no idea that bacteria are so neoliberal in character. The idea that they immediately shun away their lazy members and then go on to do other things <laughs> by, by founding a sort of managerialist spe speak or jargon that nobody would understand anymore. <laughs> but isn't that always the way that you have this way of observing science in action and the the only thing you can do as a scientist or make an analogy of it or make a metaphor or a kind of drag it out of the phenomenon you're seeing and try and describe it if you're putting it into discourse in a way that already established categories can understand it's very hard to to kind of get get out of that logic and i think a lot of bios semiotic uh, ways of understanding society as kind of, you know, uh, society as a bacteria or society as uh, as the body or some sort of bodily function. It's, it's always just dr dragging a biology into, or reading, I guess, society into biology and reading biology into society. So you have this kind of, we don't have anything outside of uh, these things like biology to describe society and how society works and how society functions. Um, but it's the moment, I guess, it becomes naturalized that you um, th that that's the danger, that there, there always has to be that gap in the translations can, so that you always already know, oh, this is a metaphor, a way of describing it, so it fits into a category or a way of categorizing the world that I understand. Uh, a very famous study in social studies of science the, the woman looked at biology textbooks uh, from secondary schools across the United States from the 1950s to the 1980s. And she's looking at one particular chapter in biology textbooks, which is the chapter on reproduction. And she shows after image after image and way of describing this moment of insemination. And the moment of insemination is described again and again as this big passive lazy egg just sitting there and these little dudes swimming up and like fighting this really hostile environment and you know the first little dude that manages to do it um, 
is the kind of winner takes all. And uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant paper because she's describing this way of kind of uh, seeing, uh, understanding the cultural world and then it's reproduced in the secondary school textbook. So you get kind of, uh, she shows one image and uh, one little passage saying the egg lifts up uh, her vestments uh, and, you know, allows herself to be inseminated. And it's just the kind of, you know, I guess more recent, more enlightened um, interpretation of that moment of insemination is that the, the egg is incredibly agentic because it has to uh, prepare the, the membrane. So it's this, it, this huge amount of work and that, you know, this competitive logic of the first past the post doesn't exist either because there's loads of semen around the egg uh, doing that work at the same time, like helping each other out in breaking down that tissue, whereas the egg is also helping to encompass that foreigner. So I guess it's a very long-winded way of saying that ideological moment happens again and again all of the time. And so we can't look at a physical phenomenon, uh, biological, chemical, without having that really powerful tool of critical theory to understand it. And the moment you see uh, something and say, well, that just is, that's just the way, you know, the origin of the universe is, or the origin of life, or the origin of insemination. These origin stories are actually highly gendered, highly controlled and controlling, without any one person saying, I'm going to flip and make sure women are seen as passive and men are seen as active, and I'm going to reproduce this logic of competition. Myself and Yoel, uh, one of the things that we um, want to elaborate on in this podcast series is the notion of the pervert, the, the interpretive lens, which is constantly reading, uh, interpreting in terms of the kind of unconscious expressions of fantasies or fears. Yes. And in your excellent paper on bacteria and market, it's full of all these fantasies about purity, gender, race. Can you talk a little bit more about why perhaps in particular bacteria seems to just agitate or, or activate the mind at this very kind of, uh, engaged at this kind of unconscious level? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think that there is something that is is deeply activated um, by images that show bacteria on your hands um, and images uh, in advertising and popular culture in general that show a kind of um, x-ray lens on surfaces that are uh, full of bacteria and it does something to us. It, it kind of it makes you want to immediately clean your hands, this kind of uneasiness that that comes from visualizing bacteria and I suppose the thing is it's it's kind of like the Mary Douglas logic I guess that says it to do that and to make such a, a booming healthy rigorous and vigorous industry of cleaning products and uh, these are kind of house cleaning products you need to be able to activate that really strongly. But in activating it really strongly, what you're actually doing, I, I think what you're actually doing is activating something different. So it's that perverted logic that you talk about. To put it in a nutshell, I would say that what neoliberal discourse does is that it represses fantasies of dirt and race and gender and makes us all 
uh, very post-racial and uh, PC. And what you get is a repression then th that then has to be opened up in a different way. So when you advertise cleaning products, you, re you can represent bacteria in ways that you can't represent human beings anymore. I guess when you look at images of bacteria from the last 150 years, and like we've looked at hundreds and hundreds of them across kind of public service advertising to uh, private corporate advertising for everything from Domestos to Dettol. And um, you see that bacteria is never represented scientifically, inverted commas, but what it's normally represented as is as something cute or as overpopulation. So bacteria activates us because it presents us with these images of overpopulated uh, spaces. Bacteria is often, if the vast majority of bacterial representation is bacteria as the working class. Uh, so, you know, um, bad teeth, bad skin, overweight, kind of impoverished or with accents that aren't posh accents, I guess. Uh, or deviant in some way. So bacteria are represented as terrorists or uh, homeless bacteria often uh, presented as homeless people. And, uh, or bacteria are often presented as gay or some in some sort of way uh, as sexually deviant so that they are reproducing in ways that uh, are not heteronormative. And I guess then a, a big one uh, that... Uh, is often used or a big trope that is often used is bacteria as uh, dirty women or sexually promiscuous women. So, it, so I guess I would say that bacteria are never represented as bacteria and they have to be represented as something else that is very triggering. As an interesting inversion of this whole idea of how to represent the very, very small living, or in the case of viruses, not so living things that surround us. Delas and Guattari make note of uh, the hypochondriac. So for them, in a, this sort of flippant way, the hypochondriac versus the so-called no normal person is actually more in touch with the real because they fear that their skin is crawling with all this bacteria and everything because that's exactly what actually is happening. So the hypochondriac is sort of channeling real existence better than other people who try to shield themselves from bacteria or viruses precisely by these kind of fantasies that you make note of. That's very interesting. So the, the hypochondriac is too near um, the real. Yeah. And that's it. And I don't know if you'd agree with this, but very effective advertising is inject you with that uh, hypochondria just a little bit. So it's just enough to, to trigger the hypochondriac within. I notice a lot of advertising for cleaning products talk about how it will kill 99.9% .9 of germs. So there's always that excess that, that's untouchable that you, you then have to address with the next round of cleaning agents. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's the, isn't it an amazing number? It's, it's, an, it's a number that is, is so loaded because it's, it, it, it will keep you within that circuit. Uh, the kind of Betty Frieden circuit of cleaning that it's unending. So it's like pie. You will never get to the end, but you can go from 99.9 .9 to 99.99, but will keep you in the circuit of cleaning, which is the circuit of consumption, which is the circuit of anything else, positive and negative. 
Ernest Dichter, the psychoanalyst who moved from <laughs> Vienna to New York and then be, worked in advertising and, and developed this so-called field of motivational research, which was notionally applying psychoanalytic method to marketing research. And um, he had this idea of consumers would think of themselves as an inner shell and then there's this outer world and he was interpreting a lot of consumer behavior as as uh, people having a sense of skin or an extended skin. Mm. So in his view, this kind of basic idea mm. of, of trying to shield yourself from invasion was, was present in a lot mm. of consumer behavior. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. And that layering, it, it, again, is also very... You can see it everywhere today, you know, like cocooning or staying at home and uh, making a fortress, I guess, from a space maybe that or that used to be more open bodied. Uh, but this kind of fortress logic is very, it, it, yes, it's very psychoanalytically powerful. Having that idea of a kind of layer of protection or that kind of membrane of protection and actually um I know Vance Packard in The Hidden Persuaders writes obviously a lot and very uh, directly polemical against Dichter. One of the things he's critiquing in, in that book, The Hidden Persuaders, which is it's just a great read for anyone. But he talks about the chest freezer that makes its appearance in American uh, households after the Second World War. And he talks about how that freezer isn't functional or it, it doesn't have very many efficiency gains. So it's very expensive to run on the electricity that it's costing, etc. He says, but why then do American households uh, want it according to Dichter and according to Dichter they want it because they want they like opening the door of that chest freezer and seeing uh, layers like two or three layers between them and penury or between them and hunger and um, so you get this kind of protective membranal uh, logic is not just in things like skin uh, or houses but it can uh, it can be in a much more uh, horizontally or laterally uh, spread out. Like from a psychoanalytical perspective, it doesn't actually have to be physically analogous with skin. Continuing with the psychoanalytical concepts, uh, could this be, I just thought about this, but could this be mm. that this is one reason why the virus is such a good concept for a truly frightening being? Because it would seem to me, it in some sense, it refuses perversion. So it always stays on the level of the neurotic, because it's so invisible. You can't control it. You can find a mode of being really where you could really respond to it. Yes, of course, you can wash your hands and you can get all perverted about that in the sense of trying to control the universe. But uh, in effect, there is always something about this invisible threat of the alien virus that resists this idea of being controlled, being understood. Yeah, and it already has a sort of mythic quality. So, you know, what's the origin of the coronavirus? You know, it it goes back to these kind of origin myths of xeno, you know, transplantation or a kind of or a, a category error at the level of a kind of species mistake. And, you know, the, the dark markets of, of China, you know, it's like something out of an Eddie Murphy uh, film from the 1980s that that kind of struggle to to put it into to, to put it into the logics that we understand talk about it it makes it kind of it breaks down everything because it is so relentless and it's so relentless then it d does things that 
require a certain relentlessness of the of the response. And uh, I'm also thinking about as a as an example, which would be funny if the present condition wasn't so dreadful. I know you've been also interested in ideas like the Anthropocene and how the Anthropocene is to be understood uh, as a part of this ongoing post-human tendency in theorizing. So just recently, a couple of days ago, some American Republican, I guess, senators came out on TV and they were speaking of the virus in interestingly, even if only implicitly, anthropomorphic terms. They were, of course, addressing the economy, saying the cure is worse than the, than the poison or the cure is worse mm. than the fate that uh, we would have otherwise. So they're basically advocating for the idea that let's open the markets again and let's get back to business so that the economy won't collapse, even if we would sacrifice uh, lots of old people's lives and younger mm. people's lives too. But the interesting anthropocenic mo moment or anthropomorphic moment for me was that they were addressing the virus in terms of saying things like enough is enough. This, this has now gone too far. It's as if they are negotiating with the virus so that the, now, now that the virus yeah. has killed only yes. a certain amount of people, now you can go and tell it that now you should stop now. Now, 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 we've, yes. now, now you've had your fun, get back in line so we can open back the markets again and so on. So this kind of anthropomorphic, this desperation, and I could say in this case also ignorance, that leads to this anthropocentric idea of the virus. How do you see this kind of a alien virus and all this kind of confusion that it creates in the face of Anthropocene, theoretically? I think that's really, really fascinating. And that's what happens when you get this very humanist logic working up against a certainly an alien reproducing logic like the virus. And and I guess that's sorry. And I, I'll answer the question about or respond to the question about the Anthropocene in a second. But it's it's as if you know when when something becomes virulent, it's because it's been agitated and it's because it, it has become angry. And that's what you get in kind of a, a kind of agitated uh, virus or an agitated bacterium. And I guess then the thought experiment would be, what if a super bacterium or a super bug or a kind of a agitated virus is actually angry? <clears throat> the Anthropocene, um, what was the question again? I, I know you've been working on the co concepts like Anthropocene as they uh, are part of this broader post-humanist tendency in mm. theorizing, well, in marketing and consumer research, but more broadly, of course, as well. And I was just interested in your take. Well, the Anthropocene, of course, is marked by a certain centricity of the human, as in terms of how the human can shape the planet, or at least think how they can shape the planet. But this kind of a sudden... Of course, we've had pandemics before and all that, but mm. in our lifetime, in our generations, do you think that that might kind of uh, cause mm. a dent in the hegemony of the anthropocentric or the anthropocenic idea mm. of the human mm. condition? Mm. I, I think the anthropocene is a, is a great term because it makes us acknowledge things as time and things happening as time. And... They, with my colleagues Gary Sinclair and Sarah Brown uh, about two years ago we did a series of interviews with preppers so people who are preparing for the social or economic uh, collapses or uh, breakdowns and one of the things that you can definitely see in their responses and their way of reasoning is that sustainability and uh, ecologically minded uh, practices 
uh, such as growing your own food or reusing things until they're completely worn out or, or making your own things or keeping extremely local in your behaviours and movements are a type of ecological thought or sustainable thought without sustainability without ecological thought I suppose you could say or that they are uh, ecological without being environmental so they're motivated to do it because they they see it really logically as uh, this is what the world is going to look like but they don't take on any of the communitarian or other ways of interpreting ecology and why it's necessary to be ecological and yet I suppose in the people we interviewed we just were so these people are, are pure ecologists, but without without thinking in the way that uh, a lot of kind of mainstream ecologists think. Nora, um, you mentioned misogyny earlier, but as as we know, uh, a trope of misogynist thought is is a fear of women as having this kind of messy body, you know, of of, of fluids coming out, and the same in racism as well. That that racists are often deeply offended by the sort of excess of smells from um, from other people. I, I'd like to just raise this idea of the fear of the other, um, and in particular as we're, as we're talking this projected sense now of the bacteria. Um, mm. One term that's entered the parlance really quite a bit these past few years is that of the toxic, you know, the, the idea that people are toxic, relationships are toxic and the best thing then that you can do with a toxic person is just avoid them altogether which when you think about it is a remarkably non-christian way of responding <laughs> is a bit of a nuisance or, or or worse just the presence of the other is already a type of harassment that's unbearable and the correct response then is to withdraw into isolation into gated community we're now really at peak at that type of of I mean, I don't want to say paranoia because, as the old joke goes, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. During an epidemic, this fear of the other becomes real and concrete. But what about this land then of the fantasy? And you, you've spoken in your, your, your work of this dialectic of alienation and belonging. There's grounds to think that we might be left with a really permanent stain in terms of our fear of the other, that, that will we, when this is over... Will we be able to shake hands and, and not be preoccupied about being close to the other? <laughs> this notion of the toxic other, uh, which was mm. already at cultural level getting bigger and bigger, will that now become even more deeply entrenched? When you're asked to comment in a way that predicts, it's, it's very difficult. You can only comment in a way that provokes or offers another kind of, kind of line of thinking of what might happen. But I, I guess that idea of toxicity, which you're right, is everywhere, um, is, it rests on this fantasy that there is some sort of a way, there is some sort of place that you can go to or time that you can go to or there's some sort of removal that can happen. Uh, and I think that what bacteria show is that bacteria are everywhere. They are the earth. So the fantasy that's put up with uh, the idea of hand washing or stepping back or surface cleaning the whole time is a fantasy that's needed uh, in order to sell products and services. But the reality is, or the real that the fantasy is trying to paper over, is that there's no way 
there's no place that you can go to that doesn't have this. So in a way, that response to toxicity, whatever it is, as withdrawal or turn your back or just ignore them, like, like, don't waste your time, don't waste your energy, is a fantasy that you can withdraw because you can't. And Zizek has talked about it. I, I think someone who has talked about it at length and and really fluidly and convincingly has been the Italian philosopher Roberto Esposito, who has a three book series on immunity and community and this uh, dialectic between them. And he says, you know, community is the moment that you were obliged to offer immunity and protection to the ones around you. So you don't donate to the community the donum or the, the munis of the, the gift, the kind of the obligation to uh, protect your own. Um, but as soon as you do that, that kind of protective logic removes community. So you're kind of obliged to protect, but that kind of logic then protects in a way that separates everyone. And and yet, if you don't do it, you you do not meet that obligation for immunity or, or for community. The paradox, I guess, is that community, or what Esposito calls it, he calls it the absent center of community, that community works uh, and it is felt strongly when everyone is protected from it. I'm sorry, I, I apologize in advance. I'm going to ask you to speculate again, but uh, continue on this topic and add some technology into the thinking. So Franco Berardi uh, wrote something to the effect that never in the history have we been so hyper-connected and simultaneously so hyper-alone or so in hyper-solitude. Of course, referring to the idea that we all sit at home and just stare blankly, uh, zombified at our screens Mm. on social media that are algorithmically Mm. controlled and guided and mediated. So if we can imagine this virus, this present moment of the coronavirus, if we can imagine that this virus can be imagined as something like an alien force that is somehow encroaching on this, what Franco Berardi was calling, this continuing capitalization of culture and subjectivity, which does it now teach us speculatively? Does this now teach us more of this falling into machinic Mm. psychosis when we're now in solitude in our home? (laughs) Or can you see, even if only Mm. speculatively, can you see Mm. a glimmer of some outside? Because there's also been some encouraging notions Mm. that now we needed this virus to recognize how much we have now already been kind of self-isolating already, even without it manifesting. So this Mm. alien encroaching Mm. or attack on this continuing uh, capitalization of subjectivity and culture, is mm. there a potential glimmer of an outside that might come out of this? Do you see anything like mm. that? Just as you're talking, Joel, it reminds me of, does it make it, is it going to be more alienating or will it, will it be enlightening and offer something back to society, this kind of enforced period of time uh, with intensified use of technology? And the thing is, I think it's the wrong uh, approach because where I think things happen is not in the space of the technology and not in the space of the human, but the space in between. So what arises in the interactions between these two things that give form to new sorts of sociality, which can be seen as very human centered or very technology centered, 
but they're happening in the space in between. They're not happening in a way that is destructive or enlightening to the, the human or destructive or enlightening to technology. It's textured in the space in between, not in the kind of the machine or the human. One last question from me, Nora. In the meantime, we have this positive discourse of bacteria. I'm thinking of probiotics and the idea of building up healthy bacteria in the gut. Is there another way of thinking about bacteria which is much more optimistic and welcoming? The thing that you can always see um, in the market, I think, is that moment something is seen as deficient or dangerous is the moment that it's going to be co-opted back in. So, and this is really obvious to people who are working in this field. If uh, you had a penny for every single bacterium on or in the earth, and if you put to stack those pennies one on top of another, you would reach one trillion light years into the future. That's why when you're dealing with this bacteriological phylum uh, in a way that the market wants us to deal with it, it's just like killing it. Uh, you're using this really gross, uh, blunt way of agency that the market wants us to do, which is just stick uh, bleach down your toilet to attack something that is much more ancient than we are and much operating at a huger, like sublime level. And I guess, so the market kind of gets at definitely the sublimity of it and packages it again as good bacteria, inverted commas, and you get products that appear like Danone's Actimil. And what you see in advertising for good bacteria is the bacteria look very different from bad bacteria. So they're really efficient uh, they are really speedy. They are working. So they work hard, whereas uh, bad bacteria are lazy. Um, so good bacteria are the good workers and they do all of this stuff for you. But that's not the way a bacterium would see the world. Maybe we don't need new concepts uh, for to bring bacteria and viruses into the conversation, but concepts for realizing that they are already there and always have been. And we are the outsiders. Yes, exactly. And there's a, I can't remember again, the author, he says, you know, the reason why we can't see God is not because he's so big. God is the size of a bacterium. Well, I guess I would say that all of these concepts are here. It's, it's exactly what you're saying, Joel. All of these concepts are here, maybe in different uh, fields, and they definitely should be brought in to understand culture and society because they do offer different dynamics. But in that translation, we are all we always have to remember that the the metaphors we are going to use to describe the what we see uh, will be fallible and gendered and cultured in some way that we think aren't. So it's the moment when we when we think they're not and there's good bacteria or there's bad bacteria, we, we should be looking at well, what do we mean by good, efficiency, hardworking, you know, uh, pleasant, etc. And yeah. bad as idle and kind of, you know, homeless. Yeah, that was wonderful, Nora. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. I I um I'm listening to this podcast and I really enjoy it. So make sure you edit me down. A lot there, you'll make me sound good. Thanks, thanks a lot, Nora. It was really fun listening to you talk yeah, about this matter. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it, guys. Thanks so much.